Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. So good to be with you. Uh, if you don't know me, if you haven't seen me before, my name is David. Uh, I get the privilege just to work with John and then also get to come down here and speak every so often. So it's good to be with you. Can't wait for what we're jumping into today. Uh, but I want to ask this question right at the top. What is the craziest thing you've ever done in the name of love? What's the craziest thing you've ever done? As I was thinking or just reflecting on that one, uh, I actually thought back to my own engagement. So I've been married, it'll be five years this summer, but I thought back to uh, when Shannon and I had first met, we had dated for about nine or 10 months, uh, and I had it in my mind that I was going to wait like 11 or 12 months. I, I had a date on the calendar, and it was Christmas. I was going to wait until Christmas, and then the Sunday before Thanksgiving rolled around, and I was like, this is dumb. This is a dumb idea. I already have the ring. I've had it for way too long. I'm, I'm ready. We're making a plan. We're doing it. So the craziest thing I did in the name of love, a um, couple things. I went to downtown Rockford. I wanted to show you this. There was a pavilion that was downtown. And I put a lot of time and energy in this. I recruited my brother. I went down. We decorated it. We turned the lights on. And at this point, it's like, I don't care who does whatever. I have a goal in mind, and I'm going to get a yes today. So any guys, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm going to get a yes. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Decorated the pavilion. Then I also took it one step further. I heard of this show called The Bachelor. I was like, there should be a rose involved, right? So I got a rose. There was a rose and then some pictures and like this little gift box. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get the yes. I didn't say, will you accept this rose? But like, it was kind of implied, you know, like, this is where I'm going. And then uh, just to boot, I'm like, I have to seal the deal. So I had one of these show up. Is that awesome? That's a horse and carriage. I know it's hard to see. We didn't really think through like the pictures and the lighting, but this carriage showed up. So like with one horse and it kind of arrived. And so after we did, you know, the whole proposal and engagement, we got in this carriage and it took us to her parents' house. And so this was like the yes, this is where I got it. She accepted. We did the rose exchange. We did the ring exchange. We did it all. And I was like, yes, we got it. I mean, I, the amount of time and energy, if you know me at all, details, not my thing. Not my thing at all. Recently, like three weeks ago, Shannon, uh, Shannon's mom was actually getting a new computer, and so all these old emails resurfaced, and uh, one of the emails that surfaced was the email that I had sent her and everybody else with every logistical nightmare detail. And, and we, like Shannon and her mom read through it, and they went, David says he's not a detail person. Are you kidding me? Like it's down to the minute where people had to be, what they had to do, where they were going to stand, where they were going to watch, all of it. So it, here's why I ask you, what, what is the craziest thing you have done in the name of love? Because love is kind of this funny thing. It kind of makes us do things that we wouldn't normally do. It makes us buy things we wouldn't normally buy. It makes us say things we wouldn't normally say. So with all these things, I love this about love too. Just as much as it makes us do things we often wouldn't do, it also just doesn't care oftentimes about opposition or others' perception. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, think about like one of the most iconic love stories in history Romeo and Juliet. Isn't it funny how the story culminates with, if I can't be with you, then I'd rather just stop living. Love is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. And then 1 John 4, it says this, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Big question. When your life is over someday, what will people say that you loved the most? When your life is over, maybe it's at your funeral, maybe it's the eulogy, maybe it's your family, whatever it is, as they look back at you and as they look back at your life, what will they say that you loved most? 
I can't wait for this series that we're in. It's called Jesus People. And uh, I didn't start with that emotional response to a series. We're jumping into the book of Revelation. And I remember I was actually talking to uh, my lead pastor, his name is Brian. Uh, I was talking to him last night, and I said, man, two or three months ago when we were talking about what do we jump into as far as series, I was not excited about this one. I'm like, Revelation? Right now? This just seems like we're opening up a can of worms. And uh, the more I've studied, the more I'm just so excited to share what I believe God has preserved for us in His Word for us specifically today. A couple things you need to know, though. Uh, Revelation, the, the piece of Revelation that we're looking at, there are seven different letters. John talked about this last week. Seven letters that Jesus instructed the Apostle John to write to seven different churches. They're on the screen right behind me. So seven different churches. The first one is Ephesus. So we're looking at Ephesus. You have to understand a couple things about Ephesus. Um, it, it's not like a farm town. You need to understand that. So Ephesus, when this letter was written to Ephesus, it wasn't like a little farm town with a couple goats and some sheep. Ephesus was like a pillar in the community. So a couple photos I wanted to show you. The first one, this is just like an aerial shot of the city of Ephesus. I mean, look at the theater, right? It's not full of goats and sheep. I mean, it's full of people when this thing is at its prime. And so entertainment was at a high, economics was at a high, trade was at a high. I mean, marketplace, businesses, homes. I mean, you name it. This was in a very established, well-off, wealthy city. So Ephesus, a couple other things. Um, this is the theater. So like, if you're in the theater looking out, there was this giant like, road that was lined with pillars. I mean, it was just majestic. I mean, it was like you showed up and it's like you have arrived. I don't, I don't even know a good comparison in our world or even in West Michigan that would rival something like this. Another one is this, the architecture that they were able to do. There's no cranes. There's no bulldozers and skid steers. I mean, the stuff that they could do, this is still standing today. This is what's unbelievable. And then they even had this last photo is of a library. I mean, so the hub for learning, the hub for economics, the hub for wealth and for trade. This was a very, very established city, but it was also dominated. It was ruled by two brutal emperors near the time. The first one was Nero. You've probably heard of Nero. The second one was Domitian. And Domitian, you could say he was twisted. You could say he was messed up. Domitian demanded worship from the people. In fact, he described himself as Lord of Lords and God of Gods. I mean, they had statues that were built of the Greek gods at the time, and then Domitian put himself above that. I mean, can you imagine the narcissism or, or just the brutality that would come with someone who believes they are so far superior to even the people's own gods? This was the type of ruler he was so that any church people, any Christian, any Jesus follower that would give glory and honor to anybody but Domitian, can you imagine the target that would be on their backs? In fact, some think this is why John, as John was, uh, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, which was on that original map, a lot, a lot of people and scholars believe that John was there because of Domitian. So I just want you, I want to paint the picture so you understand Ephesus, but now you need to understand the church in Ephesus. Super important. The church was about 40 years old. It lived under the, the brutal leadership. It remained steady. Catch that. It remained steady despite the heaviness of the culture and the oppression they faced. It resisted the culture of sexuality and prostitution. It had solid core beliefs and sound doctrine. So the big question is, why did Jesus feel a need to write them a letter? It seems like they're doing a good job. 
So what was the topic of this letter that Jesus wrote, and you guessed it, the topic was love. Let's read it together, see what Jesus says. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it goes like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is talking about Jesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary yet, big line, this, or I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. This is what I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Something changed in the Ephesian church over the course of 40 years. Something changed. And I don't know if it was because of the brutal leadership that they were dominated by. I don't know if it was because of the age of the church. I don't know if it was from the turnover from those that maybe had been a part of the church. I don't know what it was. It's funny that they're commended for doing a few things right. What's funny is that a lot of the things that they do right, a lot of churches today could be described the exact same way. But something had changed, not in, in how they lived, not in how they, they related to one another, but in how they related to Jesus. So much so that Jesus said, I have this against you. So to understand that, though, we have to look at this word. The word forsaken, when he says you have forsaken the love you had at, work, at first. Uh, the word, I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't know if this is the way you say it, but it's the word afikis. It's like Rafiki from The Lion King. You know what I'm talking about? Afikis is is the word, but afiki is what this actually means uh, in the original language is that you've left it or you've abandoned it. So as Jesus is talking about love, the love that the church originally had for Jesus, he said you didn't lose it, you left it. When you lose something, you don't know where it is. You know what I'm talking about? You lose your car keys. Um, Smartest teacher I ever met once, he lost his car. I don't know how you do that. He lost it. Sometimes we lose our phone. We, we lose something and we don't know where it is, so we have to go look and we have to go find it. When you abandon something, you leave it. So you actually make a conscious decision to not return to it. Jesus said, this is what I hold against you. It's not that you lost your love and can't find it. It's that you made a decision to leave it behind. That there were other things that, that became more important. There were other things that became more valuable. There were other things that took the number one spot in your heart and how you interacted with the world as my church. Something changed. And it was a decision. You see the precarious position now that the Ephesian church was in. And Jesus is writing this letter saying, I hold this against you. You've turned your back on me. Not a place I want to be. 
my Bible had uh, this devotion for it. I really liked the metaphor. Um, it said this, imagine a husband who loves his family, provides for them, works hard, protects, and supplies all their needs, but has lost all tenderness for his wife. He's not warm or kind or sincere or loving. He's just dutiful. Is that a healthy marriage? And is that the way marriage was designed to be? Kind of paints the picture of a church that does the right things, says the right things, continues doing the right things, but the most important piece, the very foundation of a marriage, just like the foundation of being a Jesus follower, is love for Him. So it's like doing all the right things, saying all the right things, giving all the right ways, doing everything that you would look at or that the world could look on the outside and say, yep, they got it figured out, they have this, but then lacking the very peace which drives all of it. Jesus says, this is what I hold against you. You've done some great things, but you've lost the most important, and that's your love for me. Now imagine a church nestled in a culture of division, perversion, greed, and self-idolatry that believes the right things, continues meeting every week, studies the Bible, sings worship songs, and even endures some hardship, persecution, and opposition, but it's no longer recognized by their love for Jesus. You know, it's so funny, when I wrote that last piece, I wasn't thinking about the Ephesian church. I was thinking about a lot of churches today. Is it true or is it possible that a lot of churches today, a lot of Jesus people today, have removed Jesus from the most important place in our hearts and in our lives for the sake of a president, for the sake of a party, for the sake of an ideology, for the sake of greed, for the sake of sexuality? I mean, what's the most important thing in the church now? Is it possible that the church today, the American church, this church, is it possible that this church or the church today has shifted in the same way that the Ephesian church had thousands of years ago? Isn't it funny that Jesus preserved this letter for us to still read today? It's really convicting for me. I mean, I'm just being honest. Um, I think I wrote this. This is funny. No way, not me. Maybe other churches or other people. <laughs> it can't be true of me. And then I start looking at my life. I look at the last year. Man, did I learn a lot about myself last year. Anybody else? I think it's easy to say I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about the government. I learned a lot about our church or my friends or my family. I learned a lot about other people. I learned the most about me last year. I didn't love everything I learned. In fact, I didn't love most of what I learned. What's the most important love of your life? What do you love most? I fear that many are abandoning their love for Jesus for things that are far less worthy. I think too much of our lives are no longer driven by our love for Jesus, but rather using Him to get what we want. 
been true in my life. I think it's been true for a lot of us. So this is what's cool. One of the primary metaphors used all throughout Scripture for Jesus, uh, for Jesus and his church, is this image. It's a bride and groom. Isn't it kind of funny? Uh, There's a couple different metaphors. There's two of my favorite metaphors all throughout Scripture that I think speak to God and God's character almost better than anything else we have a tangible understanding for. One is marriage. And so a lot of times scripture describes Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. And so you just picture, you know, it's a really unique metaphor. I'll explain it in a second. The other one is adoption. The other one's adoption. When we were abandoned and lost and alone, Jesus says, I choose you and you receive all of my inheritance just as if you were my child all along. Those two metaphors are so powerful, but, but I love the marriage one. And I think about this even in Revelation Uh, When it says this, I hold this against you, you've forsaken the love you had at first, consider how far you have fallen. Then he says this, repent and do the things you did at first. So I started to think, what what things do you do in marriage at first? And I thought back to, there was this wedding that Shannon and I went to, and uh, I'm just going to be super straight with you. It was the most awkward wedding I've ever been to in my life. Do you ever feel like you're intruding on somebody else's relationship at the event that you were invited to? (laughs) I mean, I, I remember sitting there. These were two friends of mine in college. I knew both of them pretty well. And so Shannon, and I, Shannon doesn't really know either of them. And we're sitting next to each other and we're watching. And it's like they're holding each other's hands on stage and gazing so deeply into each other's eyes, it made the rest of us feel like we were intruding. It was like, this is what we were invited to. And they're just staring and smiling. And you're like, this is getting weirder by the minute. And I don't want to go to the reception anymore. I just want to change the channel, turn it off, just stop. I mean, it was, it was awkward and it was kind of like gross. But, but doesn't it take you back to like, doesn't it take you back for your own life? I mean, it, it took me back after we left. I was like, I don't want anything. Did we do that to other people? You just start thinking back. But, but think about, I mean, marriage early on or relationship early on. I mean, isn't it funny when it's like you can do no wrong? I don't live there anymore. (laughs) But you remember like early? Like you you can do no wrong and and everything about the other person is just perfect. And there's no reason to fight. There's no reason to argue. There's no, it's just as long as I have you, I'm happy. I'm content. What changes over the years? What changes? I think many of us, it's, it's easy to say, oh, my spouse changed. I think we change. I think what we want changes. I think how we act changes. I think what we, what we look for changes, and it no longer becomes about the other person. It becomes about us. The exact same thing happens in our relationship with Jesus. Like I, I was thinking about this. Remember the feeling that you had when you first met Jesus? Some of you, you might not be there. You you may not have that memory yet. That's okay. I'll describe mine for you. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. This person I had depicted in my mind for my entire life turned out different than what I expected. I always thought Jesus was going to be condemning and judgmental and harsh and angry, and the Jesus I met was the total opposite. It was forgiving was empowering. He was loving. It it was like, this is totally different. And there was this euphoria that comes. There was this love that comes. There was this commitment that comes. I mean, remember what it was like when you realized Jesus died for you. 
I remember saying, God, I will do anything for you. Anything. I'll say whatever, do whatever, give whatever, and go wherever. That's what I used to pray. What changed? And this funny scripture says God doesn't change. So who's that leave? John 3.16. John read it earlier. I want to read it again. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Next verse, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I think the invitation for us today is this, to return to Jesus as our first love begins with repentance. He made the first move. That's what John 3.16 says. That's why we see it in sports arenas. That's why we see it on social media. That's why we see it in very public places. People pick that verse because it's demonstrating God made the first move. He loved you like crazy, like crazy. And, and part of, I think, this letter that Jesus intended for the Ephesian church, and I think for us today, is to take us back there. Because he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. In fact, what he says to them is, do the things you did at first. Make it about me. Make it about us. Make it about our relationship. Out of my relationship with you, this is Jesus talking, out of my relationship with you, I will accomplish more in this world than you could ever even imagine. I'll do more in your life. I'll do more in your heart. I'll do more in your marriage. I'll do more in this country. I'll do more all around the world if you will only focus on your relationship with me, not using me to accomplish what you want to do. I don't have a great application today other than let's just repent together. That's, that's what he, this entire passage, it says two things. Remember and repent. Remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Remember who you are. Remember the transaction that took place on the cross. I died for you. Remember that. And then repent of the ways that you've steered away from that. Not lost it, remember, left it. Some of us are in the position that we are in today, not because of drastic, giant decisions we've made to turn our backs on God, but a thousand tiny decisions that change the trajectory. The end of this passage is so simple. It's almost too simple. <laughs> It ends with an invitation and a warning. The invitation is this, return to me. Return. I'm here. I'm ready. I'm excited. Come back. The warning is, if you don't, you'll eventually lose me. We think about our country, <laughs> the division, the brokenness. You look at the world, I think all of us have different ideas of what would fix and what should fix and what should happen or what, what didn't happen. And I just say, if we can come back to the foot of the cross, say, Jesus, I'm sorry 
I repent of the ways I've acted, of the ways I've treated people, of the ways I've turned my back on you, even in ways I didn't realize. If we can come back and repent, do you realize we can make ourselves available for God to use his church, which has been plan A the entire time, to bring redemption and restoration and hope and peace to a world that just doesn't even know what those mean anymore. That's his invitation for us today. I'm going to close this quote. John often quotes, um, he's a former pastor, author. Um, he's alive during, uh, he was a, a Nazi dissident. His name was Bonhoeffer, and he, he said this. He said, it's not your love that keeps your marriage going. It's your marriage that keeps your love going. A relationship with Jesus isn't fueled by euphoria. It's not fueled by feeling. It's fueled by commitment and repentance, forgiveness. It's out of our relationship with him that we will actually see change, not just in our lives, but in the lives and countries and nations and world around us. That's where we need to start. My last question is this, how can we return to the love that we once had? Let's repent. Repent. So all I want to do today is I want to give you an opportunity, just as you reflect on your life, as you reflect on this week, as you reflect on the last couple months, as you reflect on 2020, whatever it is, I want to give you an opportunity just to come before our Heavenly Father. Just repent. I did it last night in preparation for today. And mine went something like this, God, I'm sorry that I've removed you from the throne of my life. I'm sorry for putting myself in the place that you belong. I'm sorry for prioritizing greed, stuff, people, relationships, control, I'm sorry for putting all of those things, all of those things that I want, all those things that I see, all those things that I've grasped for and made decisions for. I'm sorry for choosing those over you. And I want to invite you back into the rightful spot for you in my heart. That's it. That's how we return to our first love, just like Jesus wrote to the Ephesian church. So let's do that together. Father, we just come before you. God, sometimes it just hurts looking at the state of our world. I've learned this to be true just over the last few years of ministry, Father, that whenever I, I encounter someone who's angry or full of hatred, that there's usually deep, deep pain and woundedness underneath it. And I can't help but think, Father, as we look at our nation right now that is ridden with anger and hatred and bitterness, I can't help but, but think about the hurt that lies beneath that, not, not on a macro level, on a micro level for people. People that we see on TV, 
people that hold different positions, people that we live next to or live with or share a bed with. Father, there's so much pain in our world. And it's just a reminder that we need you. God, the decisions we've made to try to avoid that pain, maybe running to things like alcohol, drugs, pornography, relationships, things, purchases, bank accounts, jobs. Father, so many of those, we're trying to outrun what hurts or what scares us. And so we just repent. We just want to say we're sorry. We're sorry for the decisions we've made. We're sorry for forsaking the love that we had for you for lesser things. But I pray that you would meet us right now. I pray that you would meet us in our families. I pray that you would meet us in our relationships. I pray that you would meet us in our lives as we think about our health or our future or our country or our world. Father, whatever it is, so many of us have put ourselves on the spot of the throne in which you belong. And so, Father, in our repentance, we, we just remove ourselves. We ask that you would sit, that you would lead our lives, that we might experience the peace that comes from your Holy Spirit. that we might experience the love that comes from you, our Heavenly Father. That we might experience the joy that comes from knowing we've been saved. That we have salvation. That regardless of what happens in this world, we will spend eternity with you. Father, meet us in the way that you need to today. All of us individually as we take just these next couple seconds to repent of our specific desires, decisions, of the things that we have replaced you with. And Father, just hear from your people right now. Father, you've heard us repent of the things that we've replaced you with. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Father, stir in us a burden to share what you've just gifted us with, with those who don't yet know you. We love you. We trust our futures to you. I'll pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said together.